Thou shalt not listen to any other podcasts ahead of this one. (laughs) This is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. We're back with another Backdrop episode. On Sundays, we're going through the book of Deuteronomy together as a community. And while there isn't enough to put together weekly Backdrop pods in addition to the weekend sermons, there are definitely a few topics that we could very easily touch on briefly in more depth than we could on Sundays. And so we will be having a handful of Backdrop episodes to supplement that Deuteronomy series. And this is the first of them. Today, we're going to look at a few important ideas and themes connected to the Ten Commandments, which we find in Deuteronomy 5. We also find them back in Exodus chapter 20, and the text of Deuteronomy 5 is almost identical to the text in Exodus, with a couple small adjustments. I would suggest you read through Deuteronomy 5 quickly before listening to this, because it would be a helpful reminder, even if you are already familiar with the content, which many of us are. So what are these 10 words, which is what the text of the Torah literally calls them, and what might they mean for us today? Beyond just as a symbol for Judeo-Christian values, like those who want to put statues of them at courthouses or whatnot seem to see them as. Well, in the first five verses, we get a bit of a preamble that gives us some clues The Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says that these first verses tell us that these 10 words are not abstract principles of goodness and justice, but rather are based on who God is and what God has done. They are not given so that we might follow them and be saved, but rather Israel is to follow them because they have already been saved from slavery in Egypt. And in fact, you could see these as a rebuke to and a counter to the whole system of power and slavery that exists in Egypt. Don't be like them, be like Yahweh. One interesting feature is that these are addressed to Israel, but they are written in the second person singular. So not you all do these things, but rather each one of you be like this. Okay, with that said, Let's go through these commandments. As usual, this won't be everything that could be said about this chapter, but rather the stuff that I thought was particularly interesting or helpful, which also means we will say more about some of the commandments and less about others. We begin with number one, no other gods. Sometimes this is read as an abstract statement of monotheism, that there is only one God that exists as opposed to the polytheistic views of basically the rest of the ancient world. But the scholars I read for this were basically unanimous in saying that this is far better understood as a statement of practical loyalty. The existence of Yahweh or of other gods isn't really the issue here. And in fact, the Old Testament is fairly ambiguous on whether or not other gods of some sort exist. That isn't the question that Israel was most concerned with. What they were concerned with, as this first commandment shows, is where they put their trust. Which God do they trust to protect and provide for them? As we've said before in our church, that's the key question of idolatry. Do you trust Yahweh to protect and provide for you? Or do you trust one of the many other gods out there that are offering their protection and provision? The many other sources who say in some form or another, trust me and whatever happens, it'll all be okay. 
The testimony of the Old Testament is that Yahweh is the only one who can be so trusted, that all the other gods are empty, lifeless, and powerless. And so this is where the Ten Commandments start. Who do you trust? When you say it'll all be okay, whatever happens because blank, is Yahweh the one name that fills that blank? Or does family or money or your job or your work ethic or your status? Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, writes that what is in view in this commandment is a covenantal relationship that is all demanding and all giving. Some might today, and many certainly did when these words were written, they might squirm at the thought of God demanding all, all our loyalty, love with all our minds, all our strength, as the next chapter of Deuteronomy puts it. In the ancient world, this was completely and utterly unprecedented. The idea that one God would demand everything from you, would demand to be the only object of your affection, the only God to whom you were loyal. This was a shocking and unique demand, one that surely made people uncomfortable then as it does now. Here's the thing, though. Remember how I said that this whole list, they're not abstract principles, but rather reflections of who God is and what God does. That sort of complete devotion, all demanding and all giving, is exactly what this God promises to give to us, and in fact does give to us. We are to reflect this loyalty and faithfulness back, not give it to someone who doesn't do the same first. And that too is an utterly unique idea at the time this was written, a God who gives all of themselves to humans, seen most completely, of course, in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Okay, on to number two, no images. I mentioned this in my sermon from this past Sunday, but I'll repeat it briefly for those of you who haven't listened to it yet, (laughs) that this is not some superstitious thing or a reflection of God not having a body or physical form so you can't make an image or something like that. God can take a physical form when they choose to. See Jesus, for example. But this is rather a reflection of the reality that God is a living God, the powerful God, the God who speaks. You cannot represent such a God in a lifeless, powerless, silent block of wood or stone. I'll quote Christopher Wright here, as I did on Sunday. Idolatry is trying to escape the words of the God who speaks. One way of escaping those words is by trying to limit the activity, the vibrant God, to an image, a carved stone, a golden calf. Attached to this is a warning that God is a jealous God who punishes to the third and fourth generation. This is a source of some discomfort today, I would say. But one of the scholars I read, I believe it might have been John Golden Gay, but I could be misremembering, made what I thought was a relevant point. Jealousy is an entirely appropriate emotion for a person who is supposed to be in a mutual relationship of faithfulness, but then the other party breaks that faithfulness. A spouse who has been cheated on should be jealous. That is their right in such a situation. We would never tell such a person that they shouldn't feel jealous. That would be a completely bizarre expectation because of the relationship that has been broken. Now, why should God be any different? The only time jealousy isn't appropriate is when that relationship isn't actually there, but one party is treating it as if it were. 
But within such a relationship, of course, jealousy is appropriate. Golden Gay also pointed out that the norm in this time period would have been for three or four generations to be living under the same roof with the children and grandchildren following the lead of the patriarch of the family. This is how society and family were structured at the time. And so the sins of the patriarch would inevitably have an effect on those third and fourth generations, both in terms of the consequences falling on the whole family, but also that the influence of the patriarch in leading the future generations into this similar idolatry would then have an effect on those third and fourth generations as a practical matter. Now, this whole idea is a major theme in Deuteronomy as you read through it, the passing on of the faith to future generations. The whole book is framed as Moses passing on the faith to the next generation after the wilderness generation had died out. And so that's partially what's happening here as well. It's also important to note that the emphasis is not on the punishing of the third and fourth generations. It is rather much more on the next verse, the promise of faithful blessing from Yahweh to the thousandth generation for those who stay faithful. A thousand generations, slightly more than four, it's basically a statement of forever, that God is forever faithful to God's people. On now to number three, not taking God's name in vain. This one, like several of these commandments actually, has been grossly misunderstood by some. Put simply, this has nothing to do with naughty language. John Golden Gay, in his typically no-nonsense way, puts it like this, Profanity is not something that bothers the Bible. (laughs) In fact, while translation committees usually clean these sorts of things up in the English versions, there are places, particularly in the prophets, where the equivalent of shit or fuck is used for exactly what profanity is always used for, to intensify the message and shock the listeners into hearing what is being said? Profanity, not a problem. Don't, don't tell your mother I said that. What is a problem is attaching God's name to falsehood. To use God's name as a tool to get what you want, in other words. The word often translated in vain in this commandment is the exact same word that is used later in number nine to prohibit bearing false witness. God is true. Attaching God's name to lies should not be done. This includes not using the name of God to swear an oath. I swear to Yahweh that I'll do such and such a thing when you have no intention to do such and such a thing. Walter Brueggemann, as he often does, takes this a little further in an interesting way, saying that unlike the other gods, who are the god of the storm or the goddess of fertility or of war, the goddess of the house, etc., this god Yahweh does not attach their name to other causes or ideologies. This God is always an end and never a means to an end. I think we could all, without too much trouble, think of ideologies and causes that the name of God has been attached to in our world. Political causes, family values, racial injustice. In fact, this is why, for those of you who are familiar with Meredith's Instagram, she'll talk sometimes about how raising good kids or raising obedient kids is not the point of the Bible. The Bible is for us to get to know God and God's actions in the world, period. Because God is the end, not the means to 
a happy family or a stable life. If your goal is to have your kids obey you, the third commandment would tell us to use some other tool than God's name to accomplish that goal. Okay, number four, the Sabbath. In Exodus, the rationale given for taking a Sabbath is that we take a day off because God did so in creation. We are imitating God in our cycle of work and rest. In Deuteronomy, the rationale that's given is different. You take a day off, God says, because I set you free from slavery. You lived in a context where Pharaoh was in control of when you worked or didn't work and could and would make you work constantly. This commandment, in other words, is about rest, not worship or going to church on Sunday. And as Brueggemann points out, a rest is what slaves don't enjoy. Yahweh has broken the coercions of slavery, he writes. So now don't go back to slavery or to the ways of slavery. In Egypt, Pharaoh was lord and master, but now Yahweh has displaced Pharaoh and so can now command the people of Israel. And Yahweh, unlike Pharaoh, is on the side of freedom and justice. So Yahweh's command to the people is be free. And not just you, individual, be free, but your beasts and your families and your servants should also be free. This is another difference from the Exodus text. This version in Deuteronomy places far more emphasis on the extension of the Sabbath to all. Christopher Wright makes the point that we see in these Ten Commandments a consistent emphasis on those with power in the community doing what is right. We already saw how the idolatry or faithfulness of the patriarch would have effects on future generations of their family. Here, the command, it is to all, yes, but especially to those with beasts and families and servants, those who could choose, like Pharaoh, to make those servants work, or could choose, like Yahweh, to command them to rest. Being the boss, says John Golden Gay, means never forgetting what it was like to be the servant. And if you were with us as we went through the book of Jeremiah, you'll know that, as Christopher Wright reminded me, when the prophets condemn Sabbath breaking, which they do often, they always in the same breath condemn greed and injustice, because that's what this commandment is about. All, from the rich to the poor, the old to the young, even animals, should rest as a reminder of the freedom and justice of God. And I think it begs the question for us today of how we should think about those in our society who cannot rest. Not those who choose not to rest because they're workaholics. Yes, they should choose to live in freedom and not in slavery too. But I'm talking about those who have to work multiple jobs and overtime in order to keep food on the table. Those, usually mothers, let's face it, who have to work full-time and then parent overtime because there aren't other options. If there are some for whom Sabbath rest is impossible, it means we as a society have forced them to live as if in slavery, instead of the freedom of the fourth commandment. A similar theme of justice carries through number five, honor your father and mother. Again, the unanimous perspective of the scholars was that this has little or nothing to do with obeying your parents. These commandments are to the adult members of the community, for whom honoring parents would mean carrying the aging and dying members of the society when they are no longer useful in a crassly economic sense. 
Walter Brueggemann says about the rest of these commandments from here forward that focus more on our interactions with other humans, that they show a consistent perspective that the value of the other, whether that other is family, friend, neighbor, enemy, the value of the other is intrinsic, not utilitarian. That Israel is not to have a what can you give me perspective on others. Why does this commandment say, so that it will go well for you in the land. Well, for one, if there's a consistent ethic of caring for those who aren't useful, that protects against you yourself being treated as useless at some point in the future. But Brueggemann, again, pushes things a bit further. Death will come for Israel, he says, not when God actively does violence against the people, but rather when the just society God hopes for them begins to break down. That will be when things stop going well for them because they won't be living into the life that God has for them. Okay, number six, don't murder. The word definitely means murder, not just kill, by the way. Although some of the scholars I read pointed out that the definition of murder was a bit broader in Israel than how we might define it today. But in any event, this one's pretty self-explanatory. The God of life doesn't want us to kill each other. The idea, as Christopher Wright puts it, is that human life belongs to Yahweh. So no human has the right to then steal it from Yahweh. Number seven, no adultery. Wright, again, makes the point here that a, a common view that wives were nothing more than property in the ancient world, and so that this is seen as a property crime of sorts against the husband, he says this is actually simplistic and false when you actually look at how wives were seen in the ancient world. Adultery and faithfulness within marriage are a favorite image used throughout the Bible for God's relationship with God's people, including in Revelation, as we just saw, if you were with us for that backdrop series. But this brings us back to the idea of these commandments being a reflection of who God is and what God does. God is faithful within their covenant relationship with us, so we should be faithful in our covenant relationships with one another. All right, number eight, no stealing. Again, this one's pretty self-explanatory. Stealing is to treat others in a utilitarian way. What can I take from you to make my life better? Brueggemann writes that in the Ten Commandments, our autonomous freedom is limited by the reality and worth of our neighbor. This would be a helpful thing for some Christians to remember when they get hysterical about their rights being infringed upon, as if that were the worst thing that could possibly happen. Moving on, though, number nine, no false witness. This one, again, it's not about lying more broadly. It is specifically focused on the courtroom setting. Now, not lying, like obeying your parents, those are also things that are good to keep in mind. It's just not what these commandments are actually about. This is about the bigger damage and societal breakdown that occurs when justice is perverted. God is a God of justice. And God's people should reflect that reality. And finally, number 10, no coveting your neighbor's wife and stuff. Golden Gay writes that while wives might not have been seen as property, they were certainly assets in a broader sense, and not just of the sexual variety. In a culture in which each family farm was the family business, having two partners who could contribute to and add value to that family business was 
invaluable. And you could imagine people wishing their spouse was more like Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so down the street who seems so much more capable in so many ways. But this is to lose sight of the intrinsic worth of the other, as we said before, and is to put prosperity and wealth ahead of being like Yahweh, which sort of brings us full circle back to the first commandment. I'm going to give Walter Brueggemann the last word here. He writes, it has long been thought that coveting in the last commandment concerns an internal attitude of envy. Marvin Cheney, however, by making primary appeal to Micah chapter two, has persuasively urged that the command concerns the practices of an acquisitive society in which the seizure of what belongs to a neighbor, a life, a spouse, any property, is fair game for the clever against the slow, for the strong against the weak. The, pro- the prohibition thus addresses not simply attitude, but practices and policies that may be legalized by carefully arranged laws whereby the weak are made defenseless. Paul reasoned that such coveting is equivalent to idolatry in Colossians 3.5. The worship of the true God leads to a due sense of self vis-a-vis neighbor. The binding of the beginning in verse 6 and the end in verse 21 of the Ten Commandments permits one to see that the commands of Yahweh mean to redefine both faith and the political economy. And I think that about sums it up. Thanks for joining me on this deep dive into the Ten Commandments. I hope it was useful and interesting for you. I'll be back with a couple more one-off backdrops as we go through Deuteronomy and the need arises. We will definitely have one on the little topic of the conquest of the land and the way in which Israel is supposed to go about that conquest. And so I will see you then in a couple of weeks, probably. Until then, bye.